I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling so you can use it in your business strategy. This podcast is a six-second stories production. Six Second Stories is a video marketing agency that tells heartfelt stories to help you maximize your impact and inspire action in minimal time. Check out more about what we do at SixSecondStories.com. Boy, oh boy, we are coming in hot for season four of the Storytelling Lab. Look, I gotta say, I'm so grateful, I'm so excited, I'm so proud of what we've done with this podcast when we first started it you know we knew it would be a great way to serve the people we were trying to serve and help people understand how to use storytelling in their businesses and their marketing and we thought it would be a great tool of of value to people that was free right people that couldn't afford to hire us or hire me to come do a workshop we knew that we we could provide them with great solutions when we had great guests on the show. And we've had amazing guests. And for me, a storytelling nerd, a lot of it, I'll be honest with you, is selfish. Like I get to learn so much from these from different people from different backgrounds. And it's just been it's been an honor and a and a privilege to do this. But I'm really, really stoked because Season four is just off the chain already. I'm so stoked about this season, y'all. So it comes in first episode, no playing around. We mean business this season. Today, my guest, I'm not even going to introduce him just yet. I mean, if you're listening to this episode, you see see it on the episode. But I just want to preface it by saying I have referenced, I have cited this man's work 
in every presentation or workshop I've given on storytelling ever. Every single one I have mentioned this man, at least in some capacity, what he and his team has done for storytelling, for marketing, for psychology. Today, my guest is Dr. Paul Zak. Dr. Zak is a professor at Claremont Graduate University, but more importantly to me, probably not his students, that's very important to them. More importantly to me, he is known as the guy, he and his team, who figured out that one, storytelling, narratives, elevate the levels of oxytocin in our brains. And two, what that means. And what that means is oxytocin is responsible for us as humans trusting each other. Historically, oxytocin was known as the love hormone, the bonding hormone. Like think about like between mother and child, right? When a mother holds her baby, levels of oxytocin in both of them are elevating and there's a real connection there. Well, what Dr. Zach and his team at Claremont Graduate University in California found out was that when we tell stories to each other, that also creates that kind of connection, a neurological connection between the two parties. And furthermore, he and his company figured out that when the levels of oxytocin are elevated through storytelling, that people are way more likely to support, to take action, to donate money, to, 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 to move because of the effects of the stories that they heard. And, and his company can predict it with 80% accuracy, like who is going to donate money from the neurological responses they have to narratives. Guys, this isn't, this isn't a marketer telling us like, hey, you really need to use stories in your brand, in your brand marketing. Like we all know that by now. That's why you're here. This is the guy, this is the scientist that's saying it works it's in our brains. It's in our wires. It's, it's, it's in our DNA. Most of us even know that, that we've always told stories. And this is how we've connected since the beginning of humanity. But this is the guy who is proving it. It is no longer a theory. It's science. So when I was booking guests for season four, I've, been, I've, I've had Paul Zach on my wish list for a long time, as I said. I cite his work in everything, every presentation that I give. So obviously I would want him on the show. And so when I was ready, and I thought we were ready as the podcast to reach out, I did. And his response was amazing. And he was so personable, so open to sharing his knowledge. He lives this and loves it too. And we we connected immediately. I'm going to travel out to visit with him and hopefully measure uh, measure my neurological response to narratives someday soon, hopefully this year. And he was just a pleasure to talk to. And I this is why this is the first episode of season four. I'm not going to say anything else because I don't need to sell you. This guy will do it. So please welcome to the Storytelling Lab, Dr. Paul Zach. Well, first of all, I got to say thank you. Like, I'm super stoked to have you on the show. I kind of, when I reached out to you, I told you I've been following your work for a while. Uh, I don't know if I told you this. I might have said it, but 
probably every presentation that I've given on storytelling, which has only been a, about a year or two, uh, has cited your work or mentioned the stuff that, that you and your team have done over the past decade or more. So as a storyteller, as a, as a person who helps people understand storytelling, I thank you for your work. I just want to get that off my chest out the gate. Thank you so much, Rain. And, and I, I'm such a fan of what you do and what storytellers do. Once you see how powerful story is, you can't unsee it. So exactly. I'm a story nerd, so I'm really looking Same. forward to yeah, our conversation. Too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was really excited to, to talk to you because, you know, I talk to a lot of marketers and, and it's so, you know this, it's so, uh, you know, it's a buzzword now, which is a good thing yeah. for people like you and me. Some people see that as they don't like when things get trendy. I think it's a great thing. Um but not everybody i'm excited to nerd out with you like that's that that's why i was so happy to have you on the show because people can can talk about oh you need to you know tell stories in your branding and your marketing but to get down to the nitty-gritty which i'd like to do today that's that sparks my inner nerd too so <laughs> i'm hoping we yeah. can do and that. it's not as you know it's not just stories it's the right stories exactly. and so storytellers you're an artist you know how to create this stuff but most of us aren't, and so for me, I had to come from the science. And once you see hundreds and hundreds of stories and see the neurologic data behind them, um, I developed this term I called uh, uh, product story congruence. Right? If you're trying to tell a brand story, you've got to have this congruence. So we could dig more into that if mm -hmm. you want with some mm -hmm. concrete examples. But um, yeah, story cool. It's got to be the right story for the right <laughs> audience. It's got to be structured in the right way. Totally. Uh, so it's, there's there's a lot of details that um, I think the you know the halo over storytelling ignores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what? It's 2020. What do you what do you, what lights you up? What are you excited about uh, coming up in the new year and new decade? Yeah, the new decade. It's really um, uh, you know I as you may know started this company Immersion Neuroscience that mm -hmm. is creating a software platform so that anybody can. Um, use our technology to quantify the impact of stories and experiences and uh, to see, you know, you know, super big companies that you would know who are serious about storytelling getting to the measurement business so that we don't need artists like you who are very special and rare, that everybody can get better at creating great experiences Absolutely. for their customers, for their employees. So uh, so that's the big push this year is, is uh, get their word out on that and um, um we could talk about that or, or we can just talk about story in general, e either way. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to learn. Oh, I want to go back a little bit and just learn a little bit of, uh, more about you personally. So I know that you're in California now, correct? Right. Did you grow up there? Grew up in California, Central California. And um, uh, the key, two key issues for me uh, of uh, four children my parents had, I was the only son. So uh, okay. me and my dad, who was an engineer, spent a lot of time in the garage avoiding the the female so we didn't understand <laughs> <laughs> none of us do uh and because of that um really got into sort of tinkering and yeah, so that's... you know blah 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 went to school got a phd but i would say i sort of identify as a tool guy mm -hmm. and i've been able to cross a lot of fields from neuroscience to biology to law to, to political science because i like to build tools and solve problems so, so. so what were you into as a kid what kind of kid were you then ah uh, weirdo yeah, <laughs> you know, sport like you, sports, it's sports a lot, okay. into cars, and uh, I, I'm just I'm a super curious person, so yeah. I, I really like to figure out how things work and take them apart, put them back together. So you had that engineer yeah. mind for you know from the get go. It sounds like 
I did, but I didn't understand the human. So I think the reason mm. I spent my professional life studying human beings mm -hmm. is because I don't have that natural right, right. Uh, intuition for what the people are doing. So I'm kind of a Martian. <laughs> I, have to, I have to sort of run experiments to figure out how yeah, the humans are doing. I find, you know, now that I've gotten a little older, I find that, that you know, we, we tend to specialize and become experts in the things that we didn't have innately, right? That we had to work really hard to learn. And so then now we can kind of impart that and instill that in other people because we had to go through the steps to actually learn how to do it ourselves, right? Exactly right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So was there a moment then, I'm interested to know, like, so the other day I was doing some interviews with a friend of mine who, as he says, found birding, the hobby, the, the, the culture and community of birding, and he says it saved his life. He's an entrepreneur, he's a, a restaurant uh, franchise owner, and has been working really hard the past few years and, and basically had a, a mental breakdown. And he went to the doctor looking for some medicine, and the doctor said, you're not really bipolar, I don't really want to just pres prescribe you a pill, what you need is a hobby. And so he got into birding, realized it was kind of competitive, so it tapped into that type A personality he had, and, and he just fell in love with it. And so now he, he's seeing his mission to bring other people into the community that may benefit from it. So I learned something the other day when I was, I was helping him tell people's stories in the community, and I learned a concept called a spark bird. Uh, have you ever heard of this? Never. Okay, so the spark bird in the birding community is what was the species of bird that like hooked you, that sparked you, right? That made you a birder for life. What was the one that changed your life? And so I've just been, it's only been two days, but I've been fascinated. I wrote about it the next morning in my column, and I've just been fascinated with that concept because I love these moments. You, you know stories. It's all about these moments, these decisive moments of change, right? So my question is, was there a moment, and if so, what it was, where you're like, I'm fascinated with storytelling, or at least the human mind and how it works, and that's, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I'm going to steal that term, spark bird. It, I love so it, dude. Take perfect. it. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely perfect. So I'll give you credit for it. Uh, yeah, so how did I sort of discover stories? So um, I was I had done a lot of research starting in the early 2000s on why people help others. Mm-hmm which is kind of a mystery in, in biology. Um, if I don't share a lot of genes with you, the standard models in biology say I shouldn't really be too invested in you. Now, right. if, if my kids need help and you need help, I'm going to help my kids first. I'm just going to be honest with you. Totally. you know? so, uh, but I'm happy to help you and all else being equal. Uh, and so human beings do a lot of uh, helping for strangers with strangers and say, well, we're a social species. What's that really mean? Mm -hmm. So why would we actually put effort into that? So we spent a lot of time developing the neurologic uh, signals, uh, motivations on why people uh, invest in help others, directly um, sharing resources with others, donating to charity, these kinds of things. Um, and as part of that work, we uh, got funding from the U.S. Uh, military mm -hmm to talk about how we, we message people so that we get cooperative behaviors. Very important for the military and for our partners. And so we started testing a lot of different stimuli and, and we just almost randomly, uh, we started looking at charitable contributions. And when we, when we looked at the neurologic data for the most persuasive uh, messages to donate to charity, they had a standard narrative arc story structure. Right. And then, so at some point you go, oh, it, it's not that, we like stories is that stories actually can be so powerful that they motivate action. Mm -hmm. 
And so, uh, you know, I, I, I really believe in the phrase that words are, are uh, actions are more powerful than words. And so we started running many, many experiments in which we used neurologic signals to predict what people would do, not how they felt, because feelings are very fleeting and, and they're hard to kind of nail down yeah. or even articulate because right. they're mostly unconscious. So I said, what if we took the approach and assumed that the story was sufficiently powerful, valuable, good for you, if it made you do something difficult. Hmm. So made these experiments started with blood draw. So we're taking blood from your arm before and after you watch a story, and then we'd give you a chance, and he paid you 40 bucks, we'll give you a chance to spend some money. So I just tortured you, you know, for <laughs> five minutes in my lab, literally, stab you with needles, and you still decide to donate after you see a, a story about a kid with cancer. Yeah. That, that was really that um, spark bird yeah, moment man. when you go oh if i if i look second by second at this stimulus that works and the one that doesn't the one that doesn't the neurologic data are very flat and this the emotional tone of that story is flat but if i can build conflict if i can build mystery have a crisis and resolve that crisis oh holy crap i can move these people i can persuade them to do something so i'm a super practical dude rain and so yeah you know i want to know if if it's great that we are entertained by stories, and there's, you know, I love that. But also, that stories motivate us to do something exactly. is super weirdly interesting to me. Well, that's well, the thing is, and this was a question I wanted to get to eventually, but at least we'll touch on it. It's because that's how we create change, right? Like that's how we make a difference and 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 affect change in the world. My whole goal, you know, I I'd like to use storytelling to do to affect positive change in the world. So the fact that it just makes us feel good, like you said, hey, that's great and everything. But but what difference does it make if we have access to this tool if we can't use it to do something with, right? Exactly right. I'm exactly with you. And and you know, it's easy to take shots at the U.S. government for wasting money. But let me tell you, this program they funded us on that that burned about a million dollar taxpayer money was explicitly to reduce conflict through storytelling. So if we understood the brain basis for storytelling, instead of pointing guns at people, could we actually just communicate in an right. effective way to get people to cooperate? I think it's a very noble endeavor. And the work we did there uh, went into software that now trains soldiers in Fort Bragg, near you, North Carolina. That's right. To um, to be better communicators by using story. So, again, it sounds too squishy until you understand that. Until you us, break it down, yeah. Yeah, our group and lots of other groups did a ton of really important science um, that funded the underlying scientific basis for persuasive storytelling. Um, and so I just used the, the P word, which may bother people. I use the word <laughs> persuasion, but I would argue that every social interaction involves some degree of persuasion. So if I, want, if I want to convince you to do something, I might as well know how to do it well. I'm going to yeah. try to do it anyway. Right? Hey, listen, I wrote you trying to persuade you to be on this show. I mean, it's, this is interaction. Sure. And it's okay. And, and I'm enjoying it. And it's, and it's fun for me. And I get to uh, reach a new audience and talk to people. And gosh, I like you a lot already. So, <laughs> you know, no problem. You persuaded me and I'm happy to do it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's So let's not think of persuasion as a negative thing. It's no, just how humans or social creatures interact. Absolutely. If I invite you to the, you know, if I'm talking to you, inviting you for a coffee, I'm trying to persuade you to do something. I mean, it's not, it's not a, it's not a negative thing, but I understand what you mean when people, there's certain keywords like that people will take and they'll take some sort of connotation that's been twisted and, and run with it. Um, so when you say, when you're talking about your team, let's establish that a little bit. I know your story, but I don't want to take that away from, uh, from my, uh, from my listeners. So, 
Um, tell me a little bit about the program that you have, where, where you work, and, and how long you've been building that team that's done all the research that you've done. Absolutely, and team is the key word. So I'm a professor at Claremont Graduate University, a private university in Southern California. I've been there uh, 25 years. Yes, I was hired as a teenager, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> very young. And um, yeah, so I was able to build a lab there, uh, and they really were very supportive of me sort of creating these weird interdisciplinary fields. Yeah. Um, so I run a behavioral neuroscience um, uh, lab um, within the economics department. My PhD is actually in economics, but my undergraduate's in biology and postgraduate's in neuroscience. So I sort of help start these interdisciplinary fields, again, because I'm a practical guy. Right, I want right. to do something with it. And uh, so anyway, thank you for Claremont for, for supporting me all these years. Right on. To do this yeah. work. And then have spun out a couple of companies to do this work and uh, immersion neuroscience um, is the, the company that has made these tools available to anybody so that um, you don't have to guess, as you said, if it's impactful, if it's valuable to the brain, um, you can see it right now in real time and then begin to tweak and make these experiences better. Uh, so anyway, super fun for me to have people come to us. And, and the business came out because companies started coming to my lab and saying, right, right. hey, we could use some help on this. And at first I said, yeah, sure, you write a check to the university, but it gets very complicated yeah, yeah. Uh, when they're, you know. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's easier to run as a separate company and a great group of people who do all the work. And, you know, I have some crazy idea and then someone makes it work. So so how do you simplify that process so that like a, a normal non-scientist uh, can use it? Like how does the technology work? Yeah, great question. Um because uh, I can't, uh, you know, take something and go like measure someone's uh, brain waves sure. or their blood. Like I wouldn't know where to start. Sure. So uh, what we did was, particularly with uh, money from the U.S. military and then later the U.S. intelligence community, we basically measured every brain signal simultaneously okay. over eight hours for around a hundred people. Wow. Ten blood draws, EEG. I mean, just a ton of stuff. And we found that most of those brain signals are are very fleeting. They're not consistent predictors of people's actions. So. Okay. Over time, we narrowed down the mm -hmm. ones that were, were predictive and put them into an index that runs from zero to 10. So everyone understands zero to 10, right? Yep. It's linear, uh, you know, a six is twice as good as a three. And so we basically took a wearable sensor and we mm. used that signal to shoot it to the cloud and then do some fancy signal processing so that you can see it real time for any number of people. Um, uh, this neurologic state we call immersion in which you are attentive to the information but you're also emotionally resonant with it. You uh, uh, can I use a one bad word? Absolutely. Sorry. So one of our clients called this the give a shit measure, which yeah. I love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, the acronym for that is GASM, which sounds vaguely sexual. Uh, so <laughs> the GASM measure is, uh, you know, um, that second by second over this story, I'm varying how much you're sucking me in. So mm. most of the variation in immersion is due to this emotional component, which is really hard to articulate. Uh, consciously, right? These are unconscious uh, responses. And so if we ask people, do you like this story? Do you find it compelling? Do you think it's persuasive? It just doesn't predict outcomes, right. donations to charity or, or sales bumps mm -hmm. for marketing at all. But when we actually look at this immersion measure, because we started backwards, as I said earlier, we started with actions mm -hmm. and then asked what neurologic signals predict those actions. It's did mm -hmm. this over and over and over. Um, so yeah, so immersion is, is a state where I'm attentive, if mm -hmm. I don't, if I don't pay attention, nothing happens. Yeah. So of I pay attention, and I actually really care about what's happening, and that it's not zero one. It's a it's a continuous variable. I care more or less, 
Um, and then you can begin to tweak the story. So let me give you a concrete example, Rain, if Please. I may. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, one of the major movie studios in Hollywood is a client of ours. And um, as you know, you, you know, most movies lose money. And they have I do know. <laughs> so-called uh, tentpole movies that kind of make or break the year. Yeah. And so uh, there are companies that do nothing but produce trailers for movie mm -hmm. studios. They're specialists. And so they have three or four or five of these companies produce a bunch of trailers. And they use our technology to do two things. One is to cull out the ones that were so far below the benchmark mm -hmm. for inducing action. It's just not worth trying to edit them up. And so get rid of those, number one. Number two, for the ones that were, were you know, reasonably good or, or quite good, let's tweak them so that not only do we have high immersion that motivates action, but that immersion in particular is held at a high point at the end of the trailer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as you know, but the audience may not, a typical movie trailer is half of a narrative arc. It sets mm -hmm. up a mystery, it sets up characters, it generates a crisis, and then it holds the tension really high. So you have to buy a ticket to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does the boy get the girl? Who dies? Or, you know, what happens? And so they need to make sure they do that. So we looked at these cuts from these very uh, well-known companies that make trailers. A lot of them just kind of peter out neurologically. Like, we, it doesn't hold tension at a high point. Um, so one reason that stories motivate action is because when you have this tension in the brain, I need to dissipate it. And mm -hmm. I can dissipate that by buying a ticket, sharing on social media, uh, purchasing an item, uh, doing something. And so... Um, so we help them craft these messages second by second so that uh, help is too strong a word. That sounds like I know something. We give them the measurement tool yes. so that they can see how to edit these things and not relying on a few number of artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who might be tired, who might be hungry. Oh, and it's be... subjective. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. So, so let's measure it across the people that we're trying to message to. Right. And then we're back to this key issue. Sorry, I'm on a rant now. No, I'm with it. I'm, I'm, yeah. There are different messages for different audiences. Mm -hmm. uh, and so knowing which audience that message um, resonates most strongly with is valuable. So sometimes on average we see, for example, a movie trailer, not so great. But then you look at, um, I don't know, Latino males from 25 right. to 40, it kills. It really spoke to right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's <clears throat> a little gold nugget that's hard to intuitively figure out. But that's where the measurement comes in. Like, oh, yeah, this one, you know, so I made it, I want to target that on a particular platform where these individuals in that demographic are going to live. So let, let's, I want to spend a little time, let's break down, uh, and I know a little bit about this. And again, going back to how trendy storytelling is, and this is uh, in part, in my opinion, you know, to the work you and your team have done, but uh Terms like uh, mirror neurons or, or even neural coupling or, or among marketers, like when if I'm at a, if I'm at a workshop, maybe 15, 20 percent of people have heard these terms. They're familiar with them. But let's talk a little bit about what neurologically is like. Why does storytelling work? What's going on in the brain, whether it's the neurochemicals that uh, that their levels are elevated or why are we? designed as humans to respond to stories more than just data? Oh, such a good question. And I know um, it's a big answer, but, but this yeah. is, this is important. And you, to me, you're the person to really talk about this. Uh, a lot of people know a little bit about it, but we're, you have free reign to nerd out. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do a, a, a moderate cut and then you can go deeper if you want. I don't want to bore people to death. So no, this is what they're here for. Really, uh, in the most concrete way possible. So um, 
I have to give you 30 seconds of background. So the big problem in neuroscience is what we call a signal extraction problem. Hmm. So Rain, most of what your brain is doing now is giving you upright breathing and conscious. Mm -hmm. And a little bit's responding to my voice and information in it. And so finding those little ribbons around all that background noise is extracting that signal out. And that's a hard problem. And there's all kinds of algorithms and processing that have to be done. So I'm a practical guy. Let's start with the most simple thing. Let's get rid of that signal processing problem by looking at changes in neurochemicals. So that's why we started with blood draws. Mm-hmm. So we just said, for people who respond to this message in an objective way, is there a difference in neurochemical activity for people who respond versus those who don't? So let's run that version of that experiment as a zillion times and see what happens. And we found that neurochemicals associated with attention mm-hmm. were up in responders, but in particular with this emotional resonance that's driven by the brain's production of oxytocin. So if I have this, uh, so oxytocin increases empathy. So now suddenly I begin to share the emotions of characters. How do we know this? The attentional part's not interesting. Everyone knows that. That's, that's the, the important part was how do we measure that emotional response? And oxytocin seems to be a key part of that signal. So how do we know for sure? We've done a bunch of experiments where people watch stories and we infuse a substance up their nose to get into their brain, either placebo or synthetic oxytocin. Wow. If we give you synthetic oxytocin, you remember the story more, you are more, you care more about the characters, you'll donate more money if it's a charity. Like we can actually amp up that emotional resonance and we see verifiable objective actions occur because of that. So, okay, great. Um, I don't know a lot about humans, but I'm guessing doing, you know, 20 blood draws on you is not going to be super awesome. Although, you got nice veins. I can see your arms. You, you, I, can, I can get a needle. It's always been easy to, to right. tap into my veins. <laughs> this is the nerd world I live in. I look at people's veins. So, uh, again, with this money from the U.S. government, we began measuring, uh, imaging people's brains so we can see where those neurochemicals are active because we know where the receptors for those neurochemicals live. Um, we can manipulate them. And then, again, as I said, we measured all these neurologic signals simultaneously so that we could find the ones that consistently predicted outcomes and then built technologies that did this signal extraction problem automatically. Mm-hmm. And that took us, I don't know, three or four years. It's, it's a really hard problem. And so once we had that, then we had a set of signals. We combined them in a way that optimally predicted outcomes and then needed a word for that. And so based on all this word and storytelling, we called this immersion um, you could call it narrative transportation. It's a neurologic state for me. And it's a variable state. So um, again, I've, I've got to take that narrative arc and do something with it, right? So the first thing is to create a setting and a, and a set of characters and get me intrigued about them. So we have found concretely that if you do not capture attention in 15 seconds in a story, that you're unlikely ever to get attention. So attention mm-hmm. is this sort of necessary condition. I gotta get you to pay attention because your brain, again, is doing so many other things to keep you alive. And the second is I've gotta get you to care about these characters. So how do I do that? I create some some tension, some conflict. Something's gotta happen with them. And then, you know, as some, you would know who, but some famous uh, writer said, you know, it's like for a, for a great novel, you need an opening and ending and the rest is filler, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, but I, but that filler's gotta gotta have a particular structure. So for example, um, immersion is very metabolically costly. So that's why it's not always easy to tell a great story. 
It takes a lot of energy from your brain. Your energy has so much it's got to do that it wants to sort of idle if it can. Sure. So I don't want to have a straight-up narrative arc. I want to have kind of uh, mm-hmm. waves, and we see that in the data, kind of a sine wave it's, pattern. It's what I refer I mean, it's the roller coaster, right? If you had a roller coaster that was just a drop or just a flat line or just a climb, like none of that, even the drop, if, if it's just that, is exciting. It's the twists and turns and the building up of that tension and then releasing it. Like Exactly right. Oh, beautiful. I, lo- I haven't heard yep. the roller coaster analogy, it's but the I'm going to that It's the too. best. Nobody likes it. You have to have those moments where the roller coaster slows down and then speeds back up. You have to. Right, because you need a little breather, and your brain <laughs> exactly. needs a breather, particularly for long-form storytelling or even medium-term storytelling. Yeah. You need a little breather. So that's why we have comic relief. We have, you know, we have these little uh, multiple storylines that vary the tension levels. And so storytellers have figured this out. You know, what we bring to it is measurement. So moving beyond intuition. Mm -hmm. But let me be clear, the neuroscience cannot replace the creatives, Hmm. right? I I can't go from the neurologic data and create a story, right? I I need content. And I can tell you which content works better and for whom, but um, which I think is really valuable, right? So again, I I always say, you know, I I don't want to have a a crappy romantic partner, I don't want to see a crappy movie, I don't want to have a bad experience when I walk in a store. And it's not that any of those people well, other than the terrible ex-girlfriend I had, and these people are evil and <laughs> trying to one? give me a bad experience. Yeah, just one. Uh, they're not trying to create a bad experience. Uh, you know, um, Disney is not trying to make a, a, right. a crap movie, but right, sometimes right. it just happens, yeah. right? So how at this stage in life do we not know that? Well, it's because we're asking people when we do focus groups and things to relate their unconscious emotional experiences, hmm. and people cannot do it uh, accurately. So th- I think there's an important point, and then I'll take a breath. I think we all live in this sort of Freudian hangover in which I Mm. think somehow if I dig deep enough, I can get your unconscious to be conscious by talking about your dreams or your mom or whatever. And it's not true. It's like asking your liver how it enjoyed your breakfast this morning. You would say, that's a silly thing. Well, asking your unconscious to become conscious is also a silly thing. We can measure that with a technology, but we can't um, articulate it unless it's really extreme. If I'm really, really angry, I can probably tell you that or really, really happy. Mm-hmm. But those sort of, you know, second by second or even minute by minute variations, we don't know. Just it's it's just a it's a different data stream. So I think we've asked too much of people to relate things like liking. You know, do you mm-hmm. like this movie? So here's a classic example, uh, which you may know. Uh, the movie Marley and Me about sure. the dog. Sure. This uh, with uh, okay. So at the Sorry, kids. Spoiler alert. Uh, At the end of the movie, the dog dies. Okay, that's absolutely essential to the story because the the whole story, Marley and Me, is about the dog showing humans how to live more effective Mm -hmm. lives, how to be better at life. And that he dies means they have to now take this knowledge and move on. They can't they can't depend on Marley to be their guides forever. It's a it's a classic story structure. Well, when this was uh, apparently uh, test screenings. Almost everybody said, oh, you can't let the dog die, right? So, okay, the whole part of the story is that the dog has to die, right? Yeah, so and that's, that, that story, that specific story has been told over and over and over that's... again. Old Yeller, where the red fern grows. Like, there's a lot of those tearjerkers right. in that same story. You have to do it. And storytellers know that. So if we ask people, even if they're informed, uh, I mean, any storyteller knows that that's a classic story uh, sort of trope. But... Um, you know, because we, we're responding to this emotional, oh, no, the dog can't die. Uh, and, and again, for listeners, 
take a point, uh, take a, a second, and you know, when you watch a YouTube commercial on YouTube or something on the TV, see how many gratuitous dogs and babies there are in commercials that have nothing to do with dogs or babies, toilet paper commercials, and on and on and on. Now, why? Because if you ask people about those commercials, they will give you a higher liking rating if you have a dog or a baby in it. That's the way human brains work. We're caretaking creatures. We see little babies or dogs. So uh, there are just gratuitous puppies everywhere. If you're, you know, they're, they're just passed through the screen. It's not part of the story. And that's the, the a failure of this sort of focus group testing that we think liking is akin to valuable to the brain. And mm. when we've tested things like liking, the self-report, persuasion to predict things like market outcomes, YouTube views or sales bumps or you know, whatever data we have, they don't predict at all, but immersion predicts in sort of 80% accuracy range. If your immersion's high, we can tell you who's going to buy, who's going to share on social media, uh, who will remember the information, who remembers the branding, because I've really kind of tattooed this into your brain by using this powerful emotional state. So it's all about emotions, and that's the trick, right? It's you as a storyteller, Rain, have got to give people an emotional experience. Yes. Using your creative mind, using your experience, using everything you've learned, your creativity, and you're hoping, believing that it's going to work, and and you try it out on people. I don't know how how do you do it? How do you know when a story really hits? Do you do you just know it intuitively, or do you test? I mean, there's a there's a little bit intuitively, but that doesn't trans. I mean, that doesn't mean anything because it's not how it it affects me, right? It's how it affects the audience. Um, after, you know, I've been doing this for about 15 years. And so uh, you tend to know what what seems to work, but it's just the metrics. And now that we have most of the time we're posting on social media, you measure by engagement and 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 uh, and the reaction that, that people have. Um, but in general, these these simple storytelling tools help us understand, you know, what tends to work. But then sometimes you, it's, it's a swing and a miss. Like you said, Disney doesn't Disney doesn't plan on making a bad movie. Doesn't mean that every movie they make is great. Most of them are because they're one of the best. And Pixar, one of the best. Um, but it happens from time to time. But I think something. Uh, okay. I say I know you're really interested in health. Have you done storytelling around uh, people getting healthier? Because that seems like that's, that's a quite a difficult. We haven't worked on that at all. I'm just yeah. No, that's a big part of that's almost all that I that I work on. So when I realized a few years ago, and I started this new business, I realized kind of where was my where were my unique intersections? Because I'll be honest with you, for most of my life, I tried to keep my athletic side and my artistic side, which were both present from from day one I, I kept them compartmentalized because i didn't know anybody else who there who had that overlap so my jock friends would think i was a nerd for being in the musicals and then my like art artsy friends would think i was a meathead because i went and did pull up some push-ups um and then i realized it's like okay so i made this film uh that we released a couple years ago about a fitness culture for um uh my business I had been making films for cancer foundations and, and health organizations and I started realizing I was like oh I really s tend to gravitate towards health and fitness health and wellness projects and then I started unveiling peeling back the layers like well let's see why where do I come from well I have a, a, a mom and a brother who are diabetic my dad was an alcoholic who died of lung cancer um, I come from a poor small town in North Carolina where cancer, diabetes, heart disease are, are huge. These are my people, people that I care about. So it's like, oh, now I start to understand why I actually care about those things. 
And so now uh, I, I, I call it health and happiness because it's not just health and wellness or health and fitness because now I'm doing projects on mental health. But yes, to answer your question, a lot of the 80% plus of the projects that I work on are in that, that space. And, um, and it's tough. There's a, I did a project for a cancer foundation last year. It was a 12 part documentary series on a rare cancer and how people emotionally and, and psychologically navigate that. Um, and out of those 12, I think we, four of those people have now passed on. We shot this in 2018. So on a personal level, like incredibly tough because to create that safe space for them to talk about it, I have to build this rapport with them. I had to create this empathy and, 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 and understand them. That's what I do well as a documentary filmmaker. I can kind of connect with, with a lot of different people. But you kind of become friends with them, and so that, 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 that part was tough for me. And now I'm, I'm, I'm going off kind of on a tangent, but uh, it's, I, I love it. But, yes, I enjoy using storytelling to inspire change, help people live healthier lives because you can tell them what's good to eat or what's a good training regimen till you're blue in the face and they, people don't listen. They don't, they don't respond to it. If you tell them a story that sounds like their story, what they're going through, then they're like, well, maybe this would work for me because it worked for Paul. So I found that to be, to be really effective. And it's kind of what I've carved as my, my mission. And now that I realize why that was inherently, uh, uh, something I was passionate about, meaning where I come from, then it gives me a little more laser focus of, of who I, who I seek to help with that. Mm -hmm. So you said something so beautiful on that, which I want to reinforce the audience, which is, it's got to relate to my life. Totally. Right. So, so that's the art that you bring is you have to be able to project yourself into someone else's world and say, how do I speak to them? Not how do I speak to me? Again, the emotions may be similar, but I've got to make that story congruent, important for them. Mm -hmm. you, you know, something I love about stories uh, is that it, to be a good storyteller, to tell a good story, it requires empathy. But then when you tell a good story, it creates empathy and, mm. and, and just that that little that that's such an interesting thing to me. Um, and that, I believe, is how people like you can measure, you know, that 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 key of empathy when people are willing to take action once they can really empathize. I think that's a, that's a big part of that. Right, right. I would love to test uh, one of those cancer stories. Uh, uh, I just I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Uh, cancer history in my life in my family's life as well and mm -hmm. um uh there's a wonderful gentleman that uh, offline i'll introduce you to a neuroscientist in switzerland who uh uh is very serious bouts with cancer who's been on a storytelling uh, yep. mission uh i'm just going to suppress his name but uh he, he's sure, sure. on youtube quite heavily and uh uh he is getting the word out about his own cancer and connecting with other cancer patients it's big so he can make that leap <clears throat> Because he's a patient himself, but you have to be able to put yourself in these cancer patients' totally. shoes. So, and, and it requires empathy. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, you have to he, be able to here's what uh, with this is the Carcinoid Cancer Foundation, who I was work, who I they've been a client of mine for ten years. Um, it's a rare cancer, uh, neuroendocrine tumors, neuroendocrine cancer, 
and which is actually the 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 cancer that Steve Jobs had, but it was just uh, in his pancreas, but they called it pancreatic cancer. Well, it's a rare cancer, so most people, most f- general physicians aren't familiar with it, and most people haven't heard of it and don't know what it is. And so our goal with the foundation is to ed- is to educate people about this disease so that they can notice symptoms from it uh, earlier because it often goes misdiagnosed or undiagnosed until it's too late. If you find it in time, it's quite manageable uh, as more of a chronic condition than a terminal disease. So what we did was each episode, 12 episodes, had a different universal theme. Love, family, work, uh, you know, health, yoga. We had one that, that she dealt with her rare cancer disease through her yoga practice. Well, how many people do you know practice yoga? So many. So that would bring them in and then they'd learn about this disease because of that empathy that they built with this person who shared something that they loved. And now they're like, holy crap, you know, I, I learned about this disease. And then secondly, if their husband or brother or cousin or whatever starts to show symptoms, now they have that knowledge. Um, and so that helped this series do really well because we weren't just saying stats and data about the disease we were telling human stories of people and the disease was a part of their lives and we talked about how they managed that and it was super effective we uh a few of those got nominated for uh share care awards share care is dr oz's company and they had their first award ceremony last year for basically like the emmys of healthcare films um, and we're over there. CCF is a small foundation in, in White Plains, New York, and we're there with American Heart Association and, and, and American Cancer Soci- Society and all the, all the big guns. And so I was pretty proud of that. I'll definitely send you a couple of the ones that were are you know, more higher performing ones. And, and I'm happy to, for you to, to, you know, experiment with that. Yeah, I'm just curious. I think the health part is, is quite difficult. And it's tough. For reasons that are uh, cancer is a little different, but sort of getting healthy and losing weight oh, and all yeah, that, yeah, yeah. because you're again your your brain wants to live in this homeostatic mold where it doesn't want to change much because it takes too much energy to change. So once you've got diabetes or you're overweight or you have heart disease, it is difficult to make lifestyle changes. So I think a real test of the work you do is no effectively changing people's first changing their emotions so that yeah. you know they, they care. And so sometimes the, the films we've seen that do this effectively, as you said, talk about not yourself, but those who love you, those who care about you. So you have heart disease. You need to stop smoking. Hey, that's super hard. Nicotine is, really just is. amazingly addictive, uh, worse than heroin, according to the experts. So, you know, if your loved one is a smoker and you try to get him or her to quit, it's really, really, really hard. So. The smoking themselves, but well, if I die, I die. But now if I think about, oh, that loved one who depends on me or mm-hmm. that grandchild or child that needs me to be here, it's a different kind of story where as social creatures, this is kind of one of the early questions. Why do we care about stories? Because as social creatures, we learn from each other, we watch each other. And there's this uh, sort of theory that the reason we tell stories in bars, at dinner or whatever, is because we have sort of learned that if I add in this social component, a, a conflict, a crisis, that people pay attention to us more. They mm-hmm. care more about my story. So we're all kind of natural storytellers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we understand that to persuade, influence, affect people's behaviors, we've got to tell a good story. And what you're doing is doing that at, at scale, right? You're, you're putting these out there so more and more people can hear not just that dinner table conversation, but a, right. a well-crafted, effective story. How are you doing on time? I'm doing great. Cool. Um, 
there was something we were talking about a couple questions ago, and there was something that I read, I believe, maybe in Harvard Business Review, um, that your team found that essentially was saying that you were able to, to show that even through video, you know, storytelling was just as effective as if it were live, like face to face. Is that, does that, yes and no. You understand? Okay, let's hear. Well, yeah. I'll ask my question first. So, my question is because uh, we were, ta- you were talking about pulling these emotions out of people just, just recently. And I am a documentary filmmaker. And so, how I help people become storytellers is, is specifically through video storytelling, not exclusively, but mostly. So my question is, we have all these different tools now. And my question is, is storytelling as effective regardless of the tool you use? So if I'm just using an Instagram post or a text or a video, a short video that I put on Facebook or you and I meeting, having coffee, are there levels to the effectiveness to, you know, from your findings? That's a really good question. Uh, and so like every good question, the answer is it depends. Of course. <laughs> uh, so th- one way to think about this is bandwidth. So if I'm talking to you in person, um, I have touch. I have uh, lots mm. of uh, facial, uh, you know, uh, emotions you can see in my face. I have hand movements. Uh, um, I can uh, move my body, sure. right? So the way- bandwidth is bigger. Uh, then compare that to video. Pretty good bandwidth, right? You're seeing my face and all that. Then move it to audio. Not quite as much, but you're still getting... Uh, some information. If you if you listen yeah. to interviews with the great voice actors, exactly. they talk about using their hands a lot because they can't use their bodies to display this. They actually use their hands when they do voice acting. Mm-hmm. I'm for the listeners on audio. I'm using my hands on video here. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, this text. So we've actually taken all those things and compared them. And the bigger the bandwidth for the same story, the bigger the impact on the brain. The more immersive it is. So if it's a fabulous story, do it in person. Now, having said that, the value of video is editing, mm-hmm. right? So we have tested immersion in professional storytellers with audiences. Kills. I mean, it's just awesome because they're also responding to the audience. They're pivoting, right? So they're, they're people who are trained or who learned how to do this really, really effectively. Uh, I'll give you a concrete example in a second with some data. But, so, but video is great because I'm getting a lot of that bandwidth. I'm not getting the touch or the smell, but I'm getting everything else. And I can craft that story in the editing room. Yes. So it's not um, – in person storytelling, we tend to do a lot of tangential stuff that we would take out. Like I always say like you know, every um, – what was the show with Gifford Sullivan? 24. Mm-hmm. You know, he never goes to the bathroom. He never <laughs> – because we don't care about the sleeves. Right, we right, don't care right, about right. that. Right? We just want to see the action. Cut out all the boring stuff. So – um, in, in, in person, even professional storytellers sometimes do tangents. Uh, and then lastly, uh, uh, you know, audio, um, you know, can be great. We tested, for example, NPR StoryCorps stories. Mm-hmm. Some of those are extraordinarily good. Totally. Some of them are really discursive and they're just, they just lose the audience. So, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of storytelling. So I would say a good, the brain loves a good story. So a good story is a good story is a good story no matter how it is transmitted. But a crappy story is not going to help by telling it in person or telling it with the best video editing. So story uh, trumps the the medium of mm-hmm. transmission. Lovely. Um, did you found? Oh, 
data for a second. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Yes, really yeah. interesting. So just for fun internally, <clears throat> because we have technology, we can ask questions that we just find interesting. So totally. as you and the listeners may know, I gave a TED Talk a couple of years ago. It's got a couple of million views. And, uh, you know, it was an amazing experience to be on the TED big stage. Yeah, man. And so um, we started thinking about how much immersion – Neurologic immersion affects things like YouTube views. Mm -hmm. So I went online and I looked at like the you know the ten best TED talks and the ten worst TED talks, and um, and unluckily mine was most of those lists did not include mine, so <laughs> I wouldn't want to include my own. But we, we recruited a bunch of people and just had them watch those measured immersion, and we're able to predict, uh, you know, identify the top rated views from the bottom rated. So are you are you a top TED video or a bottom? Mm -hmm. with like 85% accuracy. So if your immersion's high enough, you're the top rated video. So very accurate predicting those. But we also asked, if you increased immersion by 10%, how many more views do you get online? And the answer is 175,000 more views. So this is in support of the statement I made earlier, which is, sorry, always being a nerd with data, <laughs> which is that a good story really drives action. Right. If you yes. can actually just make it that much better, which is really putting in authentic emotion, having a great story structure, a ton more people are going to listen to your story. So it seems like you've taken taken that knowledge and I know your company, you apply it to to different fields. Um, but I want to learn a little bit more. And you've already touched on this about neuro neuroeconomics. Now, did you create that term, first of all, or was it was it already there? I'm credited with the first published use of it, but it was in the air. So, got it, uh, got it. so I mean, yeah. I can, you know, most people out there can put the two and two together. But but tell me what that means to, to you and, and why you started steering your knowledge in, in that direction. Right. Uh, great question. So uh, neuroeconomics measures brain activity while people make decisions. So um, again, I'm a Martian. I think the humans are super interesting and weird. I don't understand them. And so instead of saying, hey, Rain made a stupid decision, right? that's a value judgment. As a scientist, I First should not First of all, that's make... never, never happened. Never right. happened. That's yes, right. <laughs> Forget the real estate you bought in 2008 in the bubble. But, oh, you know. I really <laughs> did. I really did. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. In 2000. I still have it. Anyway, oh, <laughs> another story, I, but that really I, happened. I have to say, as a, neuro, as a neuroscientist, I made Rain blush because we're on video. If you're listening on audio, so he actually blushed. I apologize. You nailed <laughs> it, though. You nailed it. See, this is okay. this is why you're the man. So we've got giant brains, but we still make decisions that, in retrospect, seem not to be so good. Or 50% of marriages end in divorce, right? How can we not know that? So it's a natural pairing to take uh, decision-making, which is the basis for economics, and pair it with a measurement Technology. So I think neuroeconomics has improved both neuroscience because it added in a real actionable decisions and it improved economics. I think it made economics much more humble. Um, so work we're doing in my academic lab now is really looking at what I call neurologic diversity. So if I take 20 people, give them the same set of decisions, I'll see seven or eight or nine different patterns of brain activity. They will do different things, even though I've given them the same information. Why is that? So here's a really interesting and subtle effect. We found in previous studies that uh, if a woman is in a decision that involves sharing money with a stranger and she happens to be menstruating, that she will tend to share less money with a stranger. Why is that? There's a mechanism through which progesterone, which is the mm -hmm. hormone of ovulation and pregnancy, inhibits the action of oxytocin. And mm -hmm. so we need to look at this, and in fact it happens. Now, 
for most women who are not on the birth control pill, they don't know if they're if they're uh, it's it's actually the premenstrual kind of ovulatory phase sure, which sure. you're predicting. You don't know if you're ovulating or not if you're a woman generally. So this is a really interesting effect. It's very subtle. It's unconscious, and it's like nesting behavior. If you are ovulating and you happen to get pregnant, you should keep resources. You may, you know, you won't be able to right, work as right. much. So it's it's very evolutionarily old. And I can give you, you know, five other examples off the top of my head of these very subtle neurochemical changes that affect our behavior. So instead of saying, you know, this person is irrational or something, <laughs> let's just let's just try to quantify what's going on in their brains that make your decision different than my decision and be super humble about that. Yeah. yeah. Man, um, I feel like we could do this for a long time. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start driving us towards the end here. I appreciate your time, but like, I, I, this is why I wanted to have you on and I, I appreciate it. Cause, uh, I feel like we could nerd out for quite a bit. Um, first, anything coming up this year that you're excited about? I know we talked about the, the business that you started recently, but anything new on the docket that, uh, that you're, ha you know, willing and happy to share? Uh, working on a new book on immersion, and so oh, nice. I'll be on the road talking about that. And um, we're applying this entertainment, but also what education, uh, helping kids learn more effectively, helping teachers manage their classrooms, Love it. Uh, adult training. So uh, I really feel like uh, it's a business. It's got to make money, or no one gets you know their salary. But we're really doing good things in the world to make uh, experiences better. And, uh, and second, my university still have the lab running and we're doing some very cool experiments. I looked into that's such a cool university. I looked into it one, you know, once, uh, once I found out about your work and like all the departments are pretty, pretty amazing. Um, that's a really interesting university. I'm like, do they have online courses there? Just starting the online. I saw so, that um, there was a couple, yeah. there's a couple, but whenever, Just... whenever your school, uh, allows some, you let me know. I will. Uh, I'll invite you. And when, uh, when can we expect the book roughly? Uh, it's probably going to be at least a year, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I'll get on the road before that. So uh, I'm out there. So um, and people should reach out to me. So if you go to um, getimmersion.com, you can email me and say hi and uh, lots of lots of stuff to download. I put all my scientific papers online for free. And, yeah, for anybody so. listening, there's a lot of Paul Zach uh, uh, con uh, content out there. Like you're you're an easy man to to find. Um, at least the work that you've done in your speeches and your, your articles. So most of my audience is, are beginners. They're people who are trying to use storytelling in their marketing. So I'm going to end on this final note. Um, they're just starting this, this process, this journey for them, for them to become better storytellers. What's the one takeaway? What's the tweet for them? somebody at the very beginning of this stage, what can they understand about storytelling that they can put into action when they're trying to connect with their audience, with their community, with their customers? You've got to be naked. And by that, I mean, authentic Literally emotions. You, you have to, yeah, Nick, you have to actually let those true emotions out. And when the emotions are authentic, you will connect to people and great actors can do this or many actors, not just great actors, but also for documentary filmmaking, or interviews, you really have to get to that emotional core uh, for people to care. And when we see that, we really know, our brains know it. Um, so yeah, build some empathy and uh, find those authentic emo emotions. And from the interviewee's perspective, gosh, it's hard to be on stage or be in an interview and really let those those true, um, you know, get to the core of why this person is here. Um, so, yeah, you can identify that. So one trick I've used uh, is just to, to identify the emotion you see. So I say, Rain, you look 
tired, happy, joyful, anxious. And then we have a whole different conversation, right? Mm. I say, oh, gosh, I, yeah, you notice that I'm really – I'm really stressed out today. Uh, you know, my dog died yesterday. Whatever it is, yeah. now we have a different conversation. So, for young filmmakers or young storytellers, feel empowered to go into that emotional space that we normally put a wall right. around, and and but do it with empathy, do it with with care, do it. I hate to say it, but do it with love. You have to just kind of love that person that you're you're getting a story from or building a story around. You have to give them that comfort that they can be who they are and let their emotions out. I love it. Well, thank you so much. I'm sending all the love over to the left coast. Uh, Appreciating you for your time, man. And uh, yeah, good luck with everything in 2020 and beyond. And maybe I'll see you out there in the world soon. Anytime. Hope we do it. Thanks, Rain. All right, brother. Thanks a lot. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on The Storytelling Lab. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 